the amount of work we do with parents at our facility and the amount of work that I now do with, with parents, teachers and clinicians, talking to parents at, at, at parent evenings, at schools, running our parents weekend at our facility, um, you, you definitely see a, a few things. The first thing is the utter isolation a parent who has a child who's dealing with mental illness goes through. It's, it is one of the most tragic things to think, believe, or, or to have an inkling that you are absolutely alone and no one else understands what you're going through. And it takes a minute for parents to recognize that this is not true. In the interest of that, my guest today uh, has a daughter who's dealing with mental illness and has a daughter who's in residential. Um, but this mom is also a parent advocate. Uh, she runs support groups. Uh, she's part of a, a parent support network. Uh, she's worked in uh, programs as an advocate for families. So she doesn't just understand it from the mother's point of view, who's going through the fire, but she actually understands it as this, this coach, this supporter, this cheerleader for parents who are going through the fire. You're not alone. And that's a hard thing to understand. But once you do, the amount of support that's available to you, primarily with other parents who are going through it, is massive. And you need to connect as a mother, as a father, as a, as a couple with other parents who are dealing with a child who has mental illness. My guest today is Gabby Giacomazzo, and she is a parent advocate, and she's a mom who's got a daughter who's mentally ill. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. Honestly, I was just working my way up to death. I thought about killing myself every day. I was using all the time, and I, that's not a sustainable lifestyle. My brother shot himself because of drugs. When you are using technology to lure children for sexual purposes, there's a couple of problems that concern me. But I remember feeling kind of relieved after hurting myself. Do you have any idea how much you were worth? I like to say it this way. Great people are really built in the furnace of affliction. Our teens are navigating a world of information anarchy and increased stress and pressure. Drugs are glorified more than ever before and there seems to be a suicide option that didn't exist prior. As adults, we are responsible to provide the help at-risk teens need. Have teens changed or is it just the world they live in that's different? Is this why so many teens are traumatized or triggered? My name is Aaron Huey, and in 2009, I opened a home for these teens with the hopes of giving them a second chance at creating the life we all know they deserve. Now I want to give parents the information that contributed to our success and to support them in navigating the at-risk world. These are the stories told by the teens and the techniques used by experts to help them. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. Gabby, thank you so much for joining. I really appreciate the time you're spending. And as I said off the air, my schedule was so crazy and it was such a prima donna about finding a time for us to meet and you hung in there the whole way. So I'm very appreciative we finally got this phone call off the air. Me too. And thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Gabby, let's start with your story. Tell, tell our listeners, uh, tell these parents what your life's been like. What's going on? 
I will give you the clip notes version, which is what I always tell all of my families that I work with. You need the clip notes version because you're going to be telling the story over and over again. I have two girls, 11 and 14. My 11-year-old is typical. My 14-year-old has bipolar disorder, and she's also on the autism spectrum. We have been through three hospitalizations, um, in-school modifications, therapeutic day schools, and now she's currently in residential and slowly making progress. And your residential program for your daughter is how long? Um, they asked for a one-year commitment, and it's reevaluated yearly um, at a school district meeting. And is this funded through the county, the state, or is this a private pay program? It is a private school, but because my school district could not meet my daughter's educational needs, New York State is paying for her education and treatment. Is is uh, there any chance that insurance is going to play a role at, or have you already been through the insurance debacles with the uh, hospitalizations? We went through insurance with um, all of her home therapy and medication management and the insurance is still involved, but I didn't really struggle with the insurance company because I know how to advocate for my daughter and other kids. What does that mean to advocate? Let's, let's get that clear in the beginning. What does it, what does it mean to advocate for your own kid? Let alone, we'll, we'll talk about other people's families in a minute, but how do you advocate for your own kid? Well, first of all, ask questions. You know, anytime a doctor like suggested a new medication, I asked the questions, you know, we had the conversation. A lot of parents, you know, go to the psychiatrist and they write a prescription and they go, okay, and they just leave. So I always wanted to be well informed on everything. And also make sure my daughter was. Does that mean that you just talked about side effects with your daughter? Or how far did you go into the conversation about medications and psychiatry with your daughter? My daughter is very unique because she knows her medication. She knows her dosage. She even knows the generic names. Um, and it was an important conversation to have with my daughter because she's the one who needs to use her voice to tell the doctors what the medications are doing to her and how she's feeling because there's risk and reward with medication. So I can only communicate what I see, but... The kids need to know how it makes them feel. What is it like having a daughter with bipolar? Explain that. Some families I know, they're, they're probably dealing with depression, anxiety, uh, maybe some cutting behaviors with their daughters age 14, maybe some you know, trauma, sexual assault, things like that. Bipolar. Oh, 
is is a uh, it's one that's kind of in the legend books you know there there's there's a myth built around it this armageddon nirvana mindset yeah, yeah break it down for us well my family has a very unique view on a diagnosis and i hope more people adopt this theory um a diagnosis are just words on a piece of paper it never defines my daughter. My daughter's still this, like, you know, unique kid who's a lot of fun, but we're just, you know, learning about things. And as far as, like, the diagnosis, it's the treatment that's more important than the words. So do you feel that that supports you or her as you go through this process with her for both? What are the strengths and, and, and of strength-based treatment, of, of, of referring to this not as a, as a, a disease? And, that, and that's kind of what I'm getting through talking to you for, for a minute. Yeah, we want to, that you want to get away from these words on a piece of paper and get back to talking about your daughter. It, yes. Um, you know, everyone's journey is different. Um, but for the most part, it's that roller coaster that we're riding on, especially with bipolar disorder, because, you know, like I've watched those long periods of depression. And then when we have a manic day, I'm actually excited because for that period of time, my daughter smiles, and it's fantastic. How does your younger daughter, um, how does she, is, is she able to uh, follow the model, Ling, that's, that, uh, that you're doing with the older daughter? Well, having two completely different kids means I'm also parenting completely differently. My younger one is, has matured more than the average 11 year old and the tips that I usually give to parents you know like when there's conflict or you know a child is having a, a moment I always tell parents walk away don't engage it's the same thing I tell other children you know who are the siblings don't engage walk away you know nothing's gonna happen if you walk away you know, it is a remarkable thing to watch parents engage with their children who are mentally ill. And I'm going to say this with as much love in my heart as I can. And I say this in our parents weekend. And I say this at the at the school nights when I'm teaching 400, 700 parents at a time. When we're dealing with a teenager in crisis, when we're dealing with an adolescent, Number one, their hormones are raging. Number two, they're still a child. Number three, they're in crisis. Number four, they might be mentally ill or have an environmental structure breakdown. And there's this engagement in a power struggle. And if we just go through the list of everything I just named, the, the being a hormone raging child who's in crisis and either have an environmental or neurological dysfunction, the adult 
is the one who's engaging in the struggle. And at some point as adults, we have to say, why are you engaging? If, if we go through the list of what we're engaging with, who's really struggling mentally right now? Is it, is it really the child with all these things? Or is it an adult who should be able to, as you say, walk away, don't engage, walk away, don't engage. And when I, when I give that advice, when I'm curious as to what you would advocate to a parent, I hear parents say, they follow me. They keep yelling at me. They keep trying to get me engaged. What's your advice? Oh, I've I've actually gotten into my car and driven around the corner just to not engage. And, you know, everybody, whether you're struggling with a mental illness or not, sometimes you just kind of need to walk away from situations or people take a moment and then come back to it. And more than likely it's the situation has changed by the time you come back. Do you find yourself getting more frustrated with the adults involved in your daughter's treatment or your daughter's involvement in her treatment? Um, I'm going to say not the people because Everyone that I have come in contact with professionally and personally who work in this field are genuinely kind people who chose a career where they're helping people. So it's not the people, but up until I would say about a month ago, my daughter was not an active participant in her treatment. She gave the appearance, but she wasn't actively participating because she was ill. Yeah. Did you, did you kind of discover a way to get her active in her own treatment? I know this will be a big question for families. How do you get them involved in their own recovery, their treatment, their, their healing? Resources. And if you can't find resources, you need to start talking to other parents. My, my daughter had the highest amount of community support. You know, she had her outpatient therapy, her outpatient medication management. She was in home-based community treatment. I had like a team of four people in my house every week. Do you feel like parents isolate their children who are struggling with mental illness? Yes. I, I, I do to a point because I did it in the beginning, but it wasn't so much, you know, we were isolating. It was that day my daughter woke up and she couldn't leave the house. So we were not going to the barbecue. We were staying home. You know, part of it is the blame and shame, you know, that you have a child with a mental health disorder. What would you do differently, knowing what you know now, to start over, start this process over again? What would you, how would you do things differently when your daughter was younger? Actually, I I know this sounds weird. I wouldn't, I, I feel like I... Maybe I wish I knew about community-based services when she was seven, you know, because I didn't discover them until she was 10. 
Um, but my daughter has been in some form of treatment since she was seven. And she's 14 now, so. What were some of the first things you noticed that told you that your daughter was going to need treatment, like actually, you know, medical mental care? Um, when I started noticing her reactions to situations greatly different than those of her peers. Can you give an example? Um, like, it's time to leave the playground. So most kids, you know, they might whine because they don't want to leave, but my daughter completely shut down and hid underneath a slide. She could not move and had to be carried to the car. It was, did you feel like that, looking back, knowing, was that more, and maybe this, maybe this question is, I don't know, as I'm, as I'm noticing, when, when you talk about strength-based treatment, and I'm going to want you to identify that a little bit better for parents, because I want to ask the question, was that the, was that the autism? Did you notice that first? Or was that the bipolar? Did you notice that first? But I, I kind of feel like you're going to give me a, a different answer. Looking back, my, my daughter did have like little sprinklings of autism when she was very young. But uh, the problem most families have when you're dealing with any type of services, whether through school or through the community, they help you when things are bad. Not when they're like, not when you see stuff and you think it's going to get worse because there's, there's like a benchmark. And if you're below, nothing really happens until later. So you're, you're saying that in the beginning you're, you were, what people have access to is, is support for crisis. And that's, that's a tough one for parents because, you know, their kid goes to a, you know, psychiatric adolescent unit for, you know, three days or even a 10-day stint. And we hear them say it didn't work. It's like, well, it's not designed to work long-term. It's designed to save their life in the moment. Um, it's to stay Right. And... And usually at that hospitalization right after a crisis, that's the first time parents are discovering that their child has a mental health disorder. So what does a parent do after that? Let's say the first time your kid goes to the hospital, they had a huge meltdown at school. The whole family's kind of sideways. The kids threaten their own life. Suddenly you're, you find yourself at an adolescent treatment unit. You've, 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 you've seen the, 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 the psychiatrist once. They, suddenly your kid's on meds you've never heard of before. You're rushing home to figure Absolutely. stuff out. You, you, you've had one family session where your kid's saying, my life isn't working. And you're like, I, I, but I thought, now what? what? And suddenly they discharge him. They say, nope, insurance is cut off and you got to take him home uh, tomorrow. And, and what do you do? How do? What do you do then? Find a parent support group. Just Google it in your town, in your state. Find one and go. Because they're out there. And actually, that was my first 
support group I went to was during my daughter's first hospitalization. And I walked into this room and I was, I was scared, you know, my daughter's in the hospital. And that moment when people started talking and sharing, I was like, Oh, they get me. They understand. (laughs) And, And I didn't feel alone. You know, definitely that's one of the big draws to the 12-step programs for alcoholics and addicts is being in a room where other people understand the, the insanity of your life. Are our parent support groups, are they designed like 12-step programs? Are you going to all have to be repeating things together? Or is it is it a little bit more, you know, people bringing 12 bottles of wine and everybody just relaxes for a minute? Or how do they work? You know what? There are so many different ways to run a support group. Um, It depends what organization you're working with or, you know, like when I ran my independent one, I, I just wanted people to have a space. And people came, strangers came, people made friends, you know, which is fantastic when you have when you have a connection with someone who is going through what you're going through or went through things that you're going through now, because parents have the best advice, you know, like I I trust professionals, but the parents are the ones who I learned from. I learned from their mistakes. People have learned from my mistakes. Because we all make mistakes. So I'm a parent. My kid's in the hospital. I think they've told me I've got maybe five days. I found myself at a support group. I feel connected with other parents. What then? What's my next step? Set your child up for therapy and look for community-based programs, which for the most part are free. You know, start having conversations that you wouldn't normally have at Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> you know, when, some, when, when someone says, how are you? Answer them honestly. Tell them how you are. And honest, if they don't listen or don't want to engage, move on because there's someone else who will listen and will be there for you. I like that. I like that. So my kid comes back from the hospital. I got some therapy set up for him. Hopefully the therapist is going to challenge them. Um, and that the therapist is going to be working with my, you know, philosophies of life or my faith or my beliefs around medication. How, as a parent, how do you, how do you teach them how to find that thing? How does a parent, do you just call and make an appointment? What do you, do, do how do you vet? How would you tell a parent to vet a therapist? Um, you you can certainly go on recommendations, but um, mental health treatment is going to be a lifelong journey for your child, whether it's, you know, continued therapy or medication management. Um, and if you go out of network, you're going to end up taking a second mortgage on your house to pay for your child's treatment. So. I ideally look for someone within network 
call your insurance company, get a mile radius of how far you can access, you know, a provider and ask, ask questions. I, my daughter has, you know, done the private therapy and prior to residential, she was at a clinic, which I'm a big fan of because all your providers are located in one building and talk to each other. Just be comfortable with the treatment. Make sure your child's comfortable with the treatment. There's tons of therapists out there. If your child's not connecting, you know, and the therapist isn't trying to find, you know, an alternative way to connect, find someone else. You know, we just can't give up. Were you a single parent through this process or did you have a parenting partner? Um, in the beginning, I had a parenting partner. We are no longer together. For the most part, I have done it on my own. The child's you know, with, parent is, is not involved in the, in the mental health recovery process? He is, but not to the extent that I am. Got it. And, um, and you know, and through my, my previous job, I did work with couples, I worked with single parents, and, you know, there's always one who is way more involved than the other. Well, what's your advice for, how, how do you advocate a family who's going through that, and certainly the one parent who's doing the lion's share of work with, like, more involvement, or how do you, how do you talk them through that? Share information, you know, if it's really a struggle go go to therapy with your spouse go to therapy yourself you know talk to other moms like if you're a single mom find the other single moms in your community you know because you can help each other out which mm-hmm. i have awesome moms <laughs> <laughs> you have talked and again i want I, I i we started talking about this and then um i, I brought it up a little bit ago so now i want to i want to ask directly talk about this strength-based recovery concept that, that you're talking about i've heard of it but certainly in in treatment it is a it is a, a concept that treatment programs can use. Um, and, I, and I will say, I think that there's pluses and minuses to it. I think some kids really want to read the DSM uh, with their therapist, <laughs> go through the criteria yes. and say, I have that one, not that one. I'm this, not that. And there's for, because I know for some children, the quantification and the qualification of what they're going through helps them I also know and teach uh, a lot of therapists about archetypes and turning the language of the clinical jargon into warrior and wizard and jester and bard and you know archetypal language really helps some other kids but you're talking about strength-based explain that for for parents well I think if they haven't heard of it it's something that a lot of them might gravitate towards you know what? I, it's for me. It's more of a positive outlook, a positive theory. You know, when our kids are struggling, they they still have 
those little tiny moments of victories. Um, you know, like showering, it, that's a victory for some people. You know, for your friends, you know, scoring the winning touchdown is a victory. For other families, it's showering, you know, it's eating a meal, it's actually taking medication. You know, those are things that we should celebrate, you know, the little positive moments, which are very difficult to find sometimes. And you seem to, when you and I talk, steer away from, again, the clinical jargon. Do you feel that that focuses you back on the problem rather than on the little victories? Well, we do have to learn <laughs> about medical jargon, but the same way we would learn about it if you had cancer or, you know, if you had diabetes. Like, these are all the same thing. We just need to be positive. You know, mental health disorders, they're treatable. You just have to get treatment and figure out what that treatment is, which is a process unto itself. You talked a minute ago about um, the success of, of taking a shower. Explain that example. You talked to me off the air about this, but I'd really like my listeners to hear that from you because I think you're talking about something that, I mean, I deal with a lot in residential programming, and I don't think parents know that other parents are dealing with this. Uh, yeah, well, lack of, lack of care to someone's hygiene, it is one of the signs of depression. And when you're in that state, and you're not showering for days, weeks, sometimes months, it can be, let's say, overwhelming for those around you. So when someone does shower, it's huge. It's huge. They, and you have to see, like, they, they felt good enough in the moment to actually care for themselves which is also something that we forget to do as parents because we spend so much time taking care of our children that we kind of forget about ourselves. When you talk about being positive, having a whole family involved in this, I, I, think, I think I'm using the voice of a lot of other parents right now. As I say, how are you so positive when your child hasn't showered in three weeks? Their depression keeps you from going to a family barbecue. You've, you've missed out on going to church a couple times. Um, you, you, you're missing out on taking care of yourself, let alone your other kids. Your relationship may be struggling. Um, the, the medication is, is throwing everybody into a swing. You've taken out a second mortgage, and maybe you're even having to pick up a, a home internet job to make ends meet. And then positive? I, the benefit. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> how do you how do you grab that how do you how do you nab positivity in the midst of having a child that's running everybody's life not just yours but everybody's life oh absolutely because i've heard 
the success stories. I've heard um, I, I've heard an adult say to me, who spent two years in residential, he said to me, I love my life. I, I've heard the stories from graduates of my daughter's school who went on to college and buy houses and lead successful careers and people that I've come across uh, professionally who have turned their own struggles into speaking out and advocating, you know, for mental health. So if you hear those stories, it'll give you hope. One of the things that I, I feel like your approach is doing is really helping you more than your daughter avoid the identified patient syndrome where everybody starts treating your daughter very differently so much so that your daughter starts acting differently because everybody's treating her differently and it's like this psychic whirlpool of she's the patient of the family do you find do you find that that's still true for you or you find that you've dodged that one by being positive um it's definitely I'm on both sides of it because she has totally changed my entire life, but she's also changed my life for the positive because if it wasn't for her, I would have never gone into this field where I can help other people. But is she the patient of your family? Does, you know, does the whole family treat her like she's mentally ill? Some people do and some people don't. My, my family, we are very open about conversations about mental health. Um, so, so much that we went to brunch with a lot of my family and everyone was having an open conversation about how their medication's working, the ones that take medication. And my daughter was shocked. She's like, we're talking about this? I'm like, yep, this is what we're talking about. These are conversations we have as a family because we're all involved, but we don't treat each other differently because no matter what, she's still her. She just so happened to have a mental health disorder and we're dealing with it. I, I feel like I want to call this show the audacity of happiness. Um, <laughs> because there's, there's a, and I'm very struck by you, Gabby, that, that this is the approach is that we're going to, we're going to celebrate the wins. We're going to, we're going to, uh, we're going to be positive because we know this can work and we're going to hold out. We're going to hang on for uh, hope that it'll work here. Do you ever just curl into a ball and wonder what happened? In the beginning, Yes, but no one can change the past. We have to deal with the situation that we have now, and that's the best we can do. I mean, that's all you can ask for. Do your best. I've been writing down some of the tips that you've said throughout 
our time together. You know, we have about uh, 10, 12 more minutes. I want to say what I've written down already and then have you add to this list for parents who are going through this. You talked about creating the cliff notes version of, of the story so that because you're going to be telling the story a lot. I love that. Uh, advocating for your kids. Uh, understanding that the diagnosis is words on paper. Um, that that and what, what I took away from that is that you are allowed to believe that your child is more than what this educated person who's trying to help your family has decided your child's dealing with. Um, you're allowed to create a bigger picture for your child and hold on to that. That's what I got from that. Um, walking away and not engaging even if that means getting in your car and driving around the block. <laughs> finding resources, talking to other parents, finding community support for the child, setting the child up for therapy, the free community-based programs, uh, exploring those, answering honestly when other people ask how you're doing, uh, and if they can't handle it, move on. Um, I have another way of saying that. I say stop sharing your dreams with people who don't give a crap about them. Um, and what's your go, what you're going through is a lifelong journey. And if necessary, get, get personal therapy. I want to get behind that one and say that uh, personal therapy is, uh, is mandatory. All right. What else would you add to this list, Gabby? Wow. Um, that's a nice list. <laughs> <laughs> If, you're, if you suspect your child is struggling, reach out to your school social worker. Ask them, ask them for help. Ask anyone for help. As far as you have mentioned the community-based programs, reach out to your Office of Mental Health. You know, the programs have different names in different states, but if you look, they're out there. Don't be afraid to advocate for a hospitalization. I have seen way too many families call 911 to have police arrive at your house and then your child not meet the criteria for them to take them to the hospital for an evaluation. And that usually happens when parents are not sharing what is really going on in their house. Well, that's a powerful one. And it's scary. It, it's scary to make that phone call. But, you know, when we were talking about hospitalizations and kids getting discharged after like three, five, or 10 days, and their child still being sick, hospitals stabilize and discharge. That's their job, and that's it. But it can get you to a turning point in treatment, and it's not scary. <laughs> well, for parents. You feel like your daughter's at a turning point, or you feel like she's coming up to the turn? I think she's moving in a more positive direction. And, you know, it was... Definitely a difficult decision to make, but we were at the point where, and I'm sure other families have 
been at this point. What we were doing for treatment was not working and it had to change. And, you know, that could be as simple as, you know, you're doing individual therapy and you need to add group therapy on. But for us, it was making that leap to residential where she's making little victories. Gabby, is there, is there a way for parents to reach out to you if they hear this podcast and want to ask you a question before they move forward into calling a hospital or uh, a therapist if they want more information from you? They can definitely send me an email. It's a long one. It's my full name, G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E-J-O-D-I-G-I-A-C-O-M-A-Z-Z-O at gmail.com. And would you want them to also find you on Facebook and send you a message there? Absolutely. Um, I'm under Gabrielle Giacomazzo on Facebook. Send me a message. And is your support group, is that, is that a support group that's a, uh, a, like a weekly drop-in? Is that online? How, how do people uh, find your support group? You can find my support group by going to uh, the Youth Mental Health Project and finding a parent support network in your community. They're popping up in Westchester, Connecticut, Long Island, um, and eventually they will be everywhere. Gabby, thank you. This was a, this was a real conversation. And uh, I think a lot of parents are going to appreciate hearing from a mom who's going through what they're going through and who's kind of walked the path that, quite frankly, is very frightening to walk. And that you're, you're right. This, this process is scary, especially when your child's life is on the line. So thank you for your information. Parents are not alone. You're not alone. There's others <laughs> like me. Parents, listening to Gabby, I really want you to hear the last thing she said, that you're not alone, that there are others like her, like you, going through this. It is the thing that we consistently find when working with children is how isolated and ashamed the parents feel. And... We expect the kids to sit in these rooms and, to, and to, uh, uh, to do this group therapy where they share their deep and darkest secrets. And we tell the kids, you're only as sick as your secrets. And if you kill the secrets, you kill the sickness. And then we look at the parents and say, what are you modeling? What are you going through? Are you reaching out? We watch these kids who have come from some of the worst backstories and are dealing with some of the most difficult mental health issues and environmental situations. And we're asking them to become a tribe and to become a community and to reach out and support and advocate for each other and hold each other accountable. Where are the parents who are doing the same? And it's an act of courage. When you feel alone and depressed that your child is suffering from mental illness, that you reach out. Listening to podcasts is one thing, and I appreciate, I appreciate so much your patronage on this podcast, and I hope you're spreading us around and giving us a like, subscribe, a share. 
but you've got to get your butt into a room with other parents, the real tangible conversations, watching the tears on someone else's face as they talk about this precious child that they have who is struggling and they might have an idea that you didn't have. And God forbid, you might have an idea that helps them out of their darkness. As always, I want to thank the boss goddess at Mental Health News Radio, Kristen Walker, uh, for all of her love and support. I uh, want everybody to know that we're moving beyond risk and back. We'll always be a podcast, but it's also moving to binge TV, and it's going to start being a TV show here in a couple series. So uh, keep a lookout, and I'll sure be saying more about that. Dan, thanks for the editing work. Uh, you've had my back wonderfully. And for parents, teachers, and clinicians, the final reminder mantra is you take care of yourself first, you take care of your adult relationship second, and you take care of your child third. Because in that way, we do our best work with our children. We will see you next week on Beyond Risk and Back. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Join us each week for your connection to experts in adolescent health and wellness, recovery, and responsibility. And also to listen to teens talk about their lives in crisis. For more information on our program for struggling teens or me, please go to firemountainprograms.com, join us on Facebook at Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center, or at Beyond Risk and Back. Visit our YouTube channel at Fire Mountain RTC for even more support with our parent training videos. Special thanks to Mental Health News Radio for their continued love and support of our program. Please go to mentalhealthnewsradio.com to see all of their podcasts. Feel free to email me at Aaron at firemountainprograms.com. <laughs>